chapter 3, verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came on him, so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years, until Othniel, son of Canaz, died. Again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. Benjaminite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword, about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us. And they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their lord fallen to the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. This is God's word. Now, one of the key questions that this text is um, asking, but also I guess a question that probably we're asking maybe implicitly, maybe actually explicitly you're thinking it out loud as you come here today is, why does life get into such a mess and what can we do about it? 
1991 film uh, Grand Canyon uh, has a famous scene at the beginning of it when there's a solicitor, um, an attorney, he's um, driving a sports car, he gets caught in traffic and so he tries to find a, a shortcut to go around the traffic jam. And um, he goes off, it's getting dark towards the end of the day. And as he's wending through these um, back streets of an unknown part of the city for him, he, um, he ends up finding out that his uh, car kind of conks out in the wrong neighborhood, in the wrong part of town. Um, he's panicking, looks around, and so he calls the um, pickup guy to come and help him and give some relief. And then whilst he's waiting for that guy to come, some local youths see this kind of posh sports car sitting around and think easy pickings. They goad the man, they eventually get him to kind of come out of his car and they're about to kind of strip him of pretty much everything and his sports car when the tow, um, the tow uh, guy kind of arrives to help him. He's played by Danny Glover. And as he starts to hook up the car, the user kind of catcalling him and telling him just to leave and walk away and let them have their kind of free lunch as it were. And he turns around to them and he says this. He says, man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that. But this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. This dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything is supposed to be different than what it is here. Like, I wonder if you identify with that sentiment. Everything should be different to what it is. I don't know how you come to church today, you know, whether everything's going great, praise the Lord. But if it is, you'll know that trouble is often not far around the corner, sadly, in this world. Maybe you come and you're experiencing some real difficulties. Maybe family troubles. There are family members that you want to be in a good relationship with, but the relationship's broken down and you don't know what to do about that. Maybe you've tried, but nothing seems to be working. Maybe you're caught in some kind of negative behavior, attitude, persistent kind of sin that goes around and around and you've made resolutions to yourself time and time again, maybe to those you love. You've said it'll be different this time, but try as you might, you just seem caught and you don't seem to be able to find a way out. Perhaps you're thinking, how can I have been so financially careful and yet I find myself in such a hole? Perhaps work or study. You're thinking, it should be better than this. I should be doing better than this. Maybe I should be enjoying this, but you just find it frustrating and difficult and challenging and uncertain. Maybe like much of the watching world in Europe, you're looking at Brexit and you're saying it should be so different to this. Whatever it is, you're consciously or unconsciously asking that same question. What's going on in the world? And then, of course, swiftly on the heels of that question always comes this question, can anything, what if anything can be done about it? That would have been the question the Israelites were asking. Make no mistake in chapter 3. Things had been so different not so long ago. The Lord had saved them from Egypt. He'd called them to himself. He'd redeemed them, rescued them with a mighty hand and brought them wonderfully after 40 years of wandering the wilderness into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a picture in an agricultural society of prosperity and blessing. And they'd taken that land under Joshua and things seemed to be going quite well. And at the beginning of Judges chapter 1, things seemed to be continuing quite well. But we get some hint that not all is well when they don't fully drive out the enemies of God from the land. And then as Andy memorably put it last week, in chapter 2 we get the trailer to the movie that is the book of Judges. This repeated downward spiral and cycle of problems and sin and rejection and judgment and crying out to the Lord that happens time and time again. It all starts in verse 7 of chapter 3 again. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, 
and serve the Baals and Asherahs. And from there, we get the cycle of forgetting the Lord, turning to false gods, experiencing the just judgment of God on that rejection of him as he seeks to discipline them to bring them back to himself. Eventually, they cry out to God when they seem to hate the oppression they're under, and God mercifully delivers them and raises up a judge, a saviour. And then they experience peace and prosperity. Then they forget the Lord, and so it happens. And each time, the spiral gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And if you're anything like me, you're looking and you're thinking, how did they get here? But of course, if you've lived in the Christian life for some period of time, you'll know that often you're asking that question, how did we get here? So let's look at our first point. How did we get here? The ugly and idolatrous nature of sin. In these, uh, these verses from chapter 3, 7 to the end of the chapter, we get three little kind of historical scenes. The second one, the main one of Ehud, is where we'll spend most of our time. But we do have Othniel and also Shamgar as two judges either side of it. And each one of these scenes helps us to see how we got here. Now, on a theological level, it seems pretty cut and dry. Look down at verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. How do they get here? Well, by forgetting God. It's not too complex. They don't mean uh, here forgetting God in the sense they forgot facts about God, that he was expunged from their memory. This is only a generation or so on. No, they knew about God. They knew the facts about God. But it's, the idea of forgetting God here is a little bit like if you go to a beautiful landscape that you're familiar with, but you've not been there for a bit, and you turn to your friend that you're there with and you say, oh, I'd forgotten how beautiful this place was. You don't mean you didn't know that it was beautiful, that you'd actually forgotten the facts about the beauty of the place. You mean you weren't impacted, you weren't moved by the beauty. It didn't grip your heart. That's the sense in which the Hebrew word forget is used here. They weren't moved by the compassion and the grace of the God they know. And that word, the Lord, in capital L-O-R-D, reminds us of his covenant faithfulness. This is the Lord who, as he reveals himself in Exodus chapter 33 and 34, says that he is the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast. That means committed love. He forgives wickedness, rebellion and sin. That is what he's like. This is the one they're forgetting. They're forgetting the beauty of the Lord who has saved them. And so what happens? Well, notice they don't turn away from God to secularism or nothing because the choice is always turning from God to an idol, to something else, to false gods, the Hebrew, sorry, the um, Canaanite gods of the Baals and the Asherahs here, these fertility gods. And as they respond by turning away, so God justly disciplines them. Now, there's lots of things that are going on in these verses that we might miss because the writer wants us to see just how ugly and idolatrous this sin, this rejection of God is. And one of the ways he does that is by little Hebrew word plays that are small but very significant. So notice, when they turn away from the Lord, his name, Yahweh, the covenant faithful God, in verse 8, they turn to and are put and sold, that is slavery language, idolatry slavery language, into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharaim. Now, it's a mouthful, but what it means is Kushan means he's a Kushite, he's a non-Jew, he's a Gentile. Rishathaim means in Hebrew double evil. So this is Kushan double evil. Now, I don't think for a minute that's his surname and that his parents kind of didn't like him particularly. This is the Hebrew commentary on what this man is like. In other words, when you turn away from the Lord, where do you end up, the commentator is saying, the writer is saying. He's saying you end up 
under the power of double evil. That is the choice. We'd love it, of course, to be a a grey spectrum, wouldn't we? You know, different people on the spectrum, but the Bible is uncomfortably binary. You either serve the Lord or you serve something else which is doubly evil. There is either the goodness and the grace and the love of God or there is sin and evil and idolatry. There's no middle ground, as the Bible puts it. Not only that, but then as we come to the incident with Ehud, we get more information. Now, of course, you know, as you look at this kind of Jabba the Hutt character, you know, which it is pretty disgusting. I mean, I heard the kind of groans as it was read out. It is a pretty grotesque story. And there is a point behind that. The writer is not just glorying in the gore. He's wanting to make a theological point that if we turn away from God, this is the type of grotesque ugliness of sin that we end up being under the power of. Now, there's lots of different ways he makes the point. For example, Eglon is the name of the king. Eglon could mean a skipping calf in an agricultural society, a kind of term of youth and a term of um, fertility, like a skipping calf. The word also means in Hebrew, round. So here's a guy whose self-declared name is the skipping calf, but of course he's fat and he's round and he rolls along the ground. You know, that's the kind of figure we get here. That's the play on words going on here. And then we're told in verse 17, this man is uh, king of Moab, and we're told in the translation he was very fat. Now, again, in the Hebrew, the literal um, Hebrew is there, he was kavod, kavod. Kavod is the word for glory, for weightiness. If a king was described as glorious, very glorious, you would repeat that word twice. So in the Hebrew, it could be read as this man was very glorious, or it could mean that he was very, very heavy. You see what the Hebrew writer's doing? He's playing on it. Probably because Eglon, in his own estimation would be thinking, I am so glorious, I rule over Israel now and I have this alliance of other nations with me. But the writer is saying, no, no, the bottom line with this guy is he's just disgusting and fat. It's not very flattering, but that's the point. Israel have turned from God, this is where it leads. And then you get these, well, exciting if you're honest, and I think you probably would find it exciting if it was turned into a film, details of this assassination. We're not told exactly how it goes about, you know, whether it's... um, Ehud who comes up with the idea or the Israelites who come up with the idea but Ehud this left-handed assassin is taken with a 40 centimeter sword or dagger that's strapped to his inside right thigh now no one would expect anyone with any military might as we'll see in a moment to be a left-hander and so they would check on his um, on his side where he would draw with his right hand so he would draw from the left side right so no one's checking the inside of his right thigh so he smuggles this dagger in but do you notice just to build the tension how verse 18 After he had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it, and now he's left alone with Eglon, this Jabba the Hutt figure. And you're thinking, this is the moment. And verse 19, but on reaching the stone images, well, hang on a moment, where is he? He's no longer in the palace. He's turned and fled. He's left. But he comes back, and we'll see that's significant in a moment. And then he plays on the king's vanity. He says, I have a secret for you, this king with the inflated view of himself and his own importance, gets excited and says, come with me into my upper room, tell me the secret, no one else is allowed. And we get the ugly and grotesque assassination as he thrusts the dagger into his flesh and this horrible detail of the flesh closing over it. And then we do get it quite delicately put. 
in the uh, translation, it's less delicate than the original, that his bowels discharge, and there's no comfortable way of saying this, but basically his servants think he's doing what he normally does about two o'clock in the afternoon. He relieves himself, and the smell is consistent with that, so they don't go in, and that gives time for our assassin to get the way. He raises the alarm, and he rallies the troops to them, and they ransack Eglon and all his troops, and they are defeated. Well, it is pretty disgusting, isn't it? And my friends, that's the point. It's supposed to be disgusting. It's supposed to make us recoil and say, oh, look at what this has come to. This is the situation that Israel are in now, having turned away from God. This is what it comes to, this type of grotesque and gory details. And the reason for that is that when we look at sin, we don't see it like that. We don't see the alternative of turning away from God as being something ugly and grotesque and doubly evil and something that smells. We don't see it like that. Our senses aren't aroused like that. Sin, as it says in Judges chapter 2, verse 3, is a trap, is a snare. Now, how do traps and snares work? Well, they work like this. You hide the jaws of the trap. You hide the rope of the snare. You put instead in front of the animal's eye a lure, a lure which beckons it in, which means that it doesn't see what's going on. It's so fixated by the lure, by the bait, that it doesn't see the danger. And then all of a sudden, the noose is around its neck and it tightens, and then the more the animal struggles, the tighter it gets, right? That's how a trap works. So when the Bible says that sin is like a snare, it's saying that. Sin never presents with the teeth and the jaws that is the reality of it. It never presents the noose that will tighten such that when you're caught in it, you are totally caught and you can't get yourself out. It presents with the allure of glamour, of satisfaction, of joy. But here's the thing. It's a trap. And yet we, like dumb animals, fall for it time and time and time again, don't we? Listen to this from an article in the Huffington Post aptly, I think, given the context of the passage on greed. It says, greed is about amassing something coveted beyond all proportion. This covetousness gives at best a psychological satisfaction because there is no way one can use all that is accumulated. The pile grows and grows to reach monstrous proportions and finally devours the consumer. This feckless greed for material wealth and its trappings without inner growth and a moral framework is the malady of the times. All kinds of greed are vulgar and ungainly and lead to trouble. It is unnatural and leads to an imbalance in the psyche of the individual. All sense of proportion is lost by the relentless craving to have and to hoard more. The wealth acquired goes beyond all points. It becomes redundant. It may be sufficient for 10 lifetimes, yet it goes on being desired. Why? Because money here ceases to be a means to an end, but becomes an end in itself. What is the result? A mania for possession. Another matter that this manic pursuit robs you of, the biggest treasure of all, is peace of mind, which ultimately is the only thing worth having. Do you see what it's saying? Whether greed in terms of hunger or greed in terms of material possessions, it allures us, but it hides its true nature. It promises us much. It delivers nothing but misery, and yet we fall for it time and time again. And it's not just greed, is it? Think of lust. Oh, it presents so glamorously the images that crowd our screens. They present of control, that you can have it, that you can be in control, of satisfaction. But you know the reality? 
It's self-centered. It's seedy, done habitually, which it very quickly leads into because these sites and these magazines are deliberately trying to be addictive. It robs you of real relationship, real sexual intimacy, makes you unable to actually have that. That's lust. Pride, insidious. It promises glory for you. In your mind's eye, you see yourself elevated and everyone looking at you and thinking how wonderful you are. The reality when you pursue pride is that the people who pretend to honor you actually are just plotting to tear you down because they want your spot. That everyone knows pride becomes before a fall because you're sooner or later going to trip up and everyone will be oh so quick to bury you when you do. That's pride. That's the foolishness of pride. Lying. We lie, we think we're in control of the truth. Of course, we never tell ourselves we're lies. We always persuade ourselves that we are, you know, telling white lies or half-truths or some other mental gymnastics to get ourselves off the hook. But lying presents as control, as you can control the story of your life. You can control the narrative. But, of course, the reality of lying is you lose control so quickly because you tell a lie and then you have to tell another lie to back up that lie and you tell another lie. And by the time you're three stages removed, you've lost all sense of the first lie you told. So you're not in control. You're spiraling out of control. And everyone can see you're out of control. The only one who can't see it is you. So much easier to tell the truth. Fits of anger. When we vent our anger, in the moment it feels like it will be a release. It feels like it will give some sense of, ugh, I just got it out of my system. But when it's done, and you look around at the scene that's left in front of you, broken relationships, lack of trust, the fallout in your life, do you see, each of these sins gives you a bait. It looks so attractive, but the noose is dangling there, and you step into it, it's around your neck, and you can't get free. And the reason this text is showing us this double evil and this ugliness of King Eglon is it's wanting us to see, do you see the sin that is enticing you this way? Can I ask you, do you? Because many of us here are saying, Pete, I've tried to kick the habit. I've tried and tried and tried, but I can't. You know one of the key steps? You've got to see the ugliness of the thing that is enticing you. See it for what it really is. Stop buying into the hype. Stop excusing yourself and saying you can control it. You can't control it. You are no more in control than a rat in a trap. You're fooling yourself. You're saying, well, I'm coping all right. I don't bear the scars. You bear the scars. The scars are masquerading to you. Stop buying into the lies. If you want to kick it, see it for its full ugliness. And the best way to see the ugliness of sin, to see sin exposed, is to look at the cross. Stephen Charnock, a Puritan, wrote this. The dying groans of Christ show the horrible nature of sin in the eye of God. For as he, that is Christ, was greater than the world, so his sufferings declare sin to be the greatest evil in the world. How evil is that sin that made God bleed to cure it? How evil is that sin that made God bleed to cure it? I take no comfort in these words, but may they be smelling salts to us. Whatever sin you're caught in, do you see what it's really like? Do you see the ugliness of it, the evil of it? Which leads us then secondly and much more upliftingly to what can be done about it. The weak and unlikely salvation of God. In these verses, we get the repeated theme that when the Israelites cry out to God, he mercifully raises up a judge to, to deliver them. It's Othniel. Look down in verse 9. When they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's 
younger brother who saved them. But we're not to marvel at Othniel. Look at verse 10. The Spirit of the Lord came on him. That is, the agency behind this salvation is the Lord, the covenant faithful God. He is the one who's delivering his people. He uses the judge as his instrument of redemption. Now, Othniel might be a more obvious candidate, being in Caleb's line, and Caleb is already a celebrated person of Scripture. But when we come to Ehud, everything about him shouts that he is the wrong choice. Now, he is a left-handed man. He's a Benjamite. Let's take those in reverse order. The Benjamite is important because that means that he is one of the 12th tribe of Israel. So Benjamin was the youngest of the 12 sons of Jacob. And in a society that valued the primogenitor, the firstborn, to be the youngest was to be the weakest in the kind of family group. And so he comes from the weakest of the tribes. Not only that, he's left-handed. Now, if you're left-handed, can I say that what mind you of what Mark said at the beginning, we are united and diverse church, left-handers and right-handers together in the unity of the gospel, you're very welcome here. The Bible doesn't have anything against left-handers. It's just in the context of the culture when you went out to war, it was important that you could form a united line of shields if you were going to be defending your attacking a position. And so if you were all right-handed, you would have the shield on your left arm and you would attack and strike with the sword with your right arm. And so you could bind up the shields. So a left-hander, of course, throws the whole chain into disarray. And so they wouldn't have left-handers in the army. They would not even train them. So this man is untrained. He is a discard from the army because he's got the wrong, you know, predominant hand. So the whole point is he's weak in family terms, he's weak in military terms, not exactly assassin material. And did you notice how also he's not very brave? He has his moment in verse 18 to do the assassination, but he bottles it. Verse 18, after he had presented the tribute, he sent on the way those who had carried it. Verse 19, but suddenly he's outside the palace on reaching the stone images near Gilgal. And then he turns back. Now, why does he turn back in verse 19? This is a really important detail. Well, what are we told in verse 19? On reaching the stone images. In other words, it's as he sees the idolatry of this pagan nation, the idols that have captured the attention of his people. That is the thing that makes him go back. So he's weak. He's not naturally brave. He's not the natural choice. But he has one thing. He is passionate about God and passionate about God's glory. Unless you think that I'm stretching verse 19 too much, look down at verse 26. When he leaves, while they waited, Ehud got away, he passed by the stone images and escaped to Sarah. You see that we get at either side bookending these events, the idolatry. To make the point, the idolatry is the problem, but also it's the passion and zeal for the Lord and the repugnant nature of the idolatry that sends Ehud back. But he's weak. He's not the person you choose. He's not the person we would select. And then we get Shamgar, who strikes down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. I doubt many of us here know what an ox goad is. It's basically a long stick with a pointy bit on the end. I mean, the point being, it's not exactly you know, a samurai sword or you know, the type of sniper's rifle that would help you in the situation. Six, I mean, all of this huge number, 600 Philistines with a stick? It's a weak and unlikely instrument of salvation. The passage, of course, is making the point that God uses weak and unlikely means. And these are patterns of a greater reality that, of course, wonderfully is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Hear these words of Isaiah 53 about Jesus. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. Jesus is the truly weak and unlikely salvation of God. Think of the cross. Who would have thought that an instrument of grotesque and ugly torture would be the very location of the peace and love of God. Who would have thought that it would be in blood shed that the Lord would be healing and washing things clean? Who would have thought that it would be in weakness and shame that the Lord would be restoring and offering redemption and forgiveness to all who turn to the Lord Jesus Christ? But this is the weak and unlikely salvation of God, is it not? And the greatest stories, well, they pick up on this theme. Think of the Lord of the Rings. Who is the saviour figure in the Lord of the Rings? Is it the elf, fleet of foot and swift and great of skill? Is it the dwarfs, mighty and strong and fearless in battle? Is it the wizards, wise, commanding magic, living for a hundred lifetimes? Is it the race of men, noble, able to build magnificent cities and ride horses into battle? No, you know the story, it's a halfling, half a full person in some ways, not militarily trained, and yet this halfling gives his life, is prepared to give his life for the cause to save Middle Earth. You know where Tolkien got that from, of course, he was a Christian. This is the theme, the weak and unlikely salvation of God. But not only that, whilst there are ways in which, I suppose, um, Ehud prefigures Christ. There are ways in which, of course, Christ is so much more and also different. You see, Ehud takes a life to bring salvation for God's people, but of course, the Lord Jesus Christ gives up his life to bring salvation for his people. Ehud kills God's enemies by thrusting the dagger deep into the flesh of Eglon. Jesus Christ allows the nails to be thrust into him as he's pinned to the cross for our sake. Ehud kills God's enemies, meeting out the just judgment of God. Jesus is killed on the cross as he takes the just judgment of God so that you and I will never have to take it. And that is why Jesus is really the only one who can deliver us from the grotesque nature of sin. My friend, do you feel trapped? Are you crying out, why is my life in such a mess? What, if anything, can be done about it? Maybe you feel like the Israelites. Maybe you're saying, Pete, I've cried out a hundred times. Why hasn't God sent me a deliverer? My friend, he has. He sent you the very Son of God. When Jesus dies on the cross, he says the words, it is finished. He's paid for the penalty of sin, and he's disarmed the power of sin on the cross. And if you trust in him, he will give you the victory. Maybe you just need to remember the salvation of God. That means be impacted by it. See the ugliness of sin on the cross. As the words of the song we're about to sing say, this the power of the cross 
Son of God slain for us. What a love, what a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. As I close, I want to apply this to chapter 3, verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord. Have you forgotten the Lord? Remember, I don't mean forgetting in the sense of forgotten details about him, but does he impact your heart? Does he grip you? Because to the extent that you are gripped by the wonder of the cross, that you see the ugliness of your sin, that is the power in the power of the Spirit to turn away from sin and to turn to God. He is a mighty deliverer. He's done everything so that your life might be different, so that he might turn things around. Do you believe that? Or have you forgotten that? If you've forgotten that, there'd be no better way to come back to him than taking the Lord's Supper in a moment and saying to the Lord, you are my deliverer. The salvation is weak, it's unlikely, but it is powerful to save. You have saved me, you have set me free. I believe that, I reaffirm that. Let me lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, how we need to see the grotesque and ugly nature of sin, how we need to not be caught up in its lies. We need to see it as the trap that it is. Reveal in our lives, Lord God, the teeth of the traps we're falling into, the nooses that ensnare us, Lord God, so that we might be reviled by them, so we might recoil. And would we see the beauty of the cross? Would bloodshed, shame, and death on the cross be for us restoration, life, forgiveness, and relationship restored with you, we pray. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.